0: hello friends um before i get into today's episode i just want to share a couple of things the first is that i'm recording this on june 9th of 2020 so knowing how much of a shit storm this year has already been i am sure more will be coming this is only current information for me so um you know take that with a grain of salt if you're listening in the future. Um, the second thing that I want to note is that, um, this episode discusses, uh, police violence towards black and brown folks. If you're not ready to listen to that content, um, it's totally okay to opt out of listening to this for now. Um, if you are white, though, I'm going to say that once you've done some work, please come back and listen to this episode, because it's very important for those of us who are white to put in the work, to understand racism, and understand why cop on black and brown brutality is such a prevalent issue and also something we need to stop. Um... I also want to take a moment to recognize Alicia Garza, Patrisse Cullors, and Opal Tometi, the three founders of Black Lives Matter, um, because the work that they have done with that organization, um, has shaped how any sort of justice organizing is happening, and, um, it's just really great to see three black women leading an organization that is having this much impact, um, and being talked about all the time, not always in the best light because racists, but, um, you know, the fact that they are doing something incredibly important and constantly on the lips of leaders (laughs) is really impressive um especially given the subject matter. So, I'm very grateful to the work that they have done, the work that they the people involved with Black Lives Matter has done as an organization to um pull people in and help educate folks who might not be as educated about this topic. Um the final note just before I jump into this episode um again Given the subject matter and given the time that we're in right now, um, I want to make sure that people are aware of the various resources that you can go to and learn about racism and learn about white privilege and all of those things. So in with the, um, articles that I've used as sources for today's episode, I am also including, including a bunch of resources on racism, what defunding the police or abolitionist uh, abolitionism um, looks like, and those things, so that if any of us are going to speak about them, we speak about them from a place of at least knowing something about them, instead of a place of ignorance, because that's not going to do anybody any good, and it's just going to make us look like assholes. So... With that said, today's episode is going to discuss um, one of the most upsetting cases of cops murdering a young black man here in Wisconsin, specifically here in Madison. Willie Street, which is on the east side of Madison, is you know, otherwise known as Williamson Street, but nobody here calls it that. Um, It is close to campus, close to downtown. There are various cool shops and restaurants in the area, vegan cafes, um, the Willie Street Co-op. For those of you who've been to Madison, that's where they're their like main location is. Um, there's even a social justice center, right? There's a lot of really important businesses along Willie Street and in the surrounding area because it is such a cornerstone of the Madison community. On March sixth of 2015, an 18-year-old named Javier um, called the police. He lived with two other people. Uh, one roommate who was not at home at the time and the other roommate named Tony was acting erratically Um, Javier had just left home to go to a basketball game and Tony was chasing the car down the street Um, Javier made sure when he called the cops to tell them that Tony was not armed he wasn't violent, he didn't have a history of violence he just needed assistance there was something going on and he just needed someone there to help him Earlier in that day, Tony Robinson had been out with a small group and had taken some magic mushrooms, according to a friend who was present at the time. Um, This friend, who the guardian did not name, which is good, we want to keep people safe, um, had known Robinson for a number of years and said that he had been inexperienced with hallucinogens and had taken a pretty substantial quantity for not having had them before. Um, This person said he had no clue what he was in for. Realistically, he needed someone to sit him down and tell him that everything was okay. Um, He had gone to play on the ice at Governor's Island nearby and returned home around 5 p.m. that day. Following Javier's departure, Tony allegedly went across the street and allegedly punched someone. I couldn't find a lot of detail about that. I don't know. I... That's not the thing I'm focused on here. (laughs) Anyway. At around 6.30pm, so within a couple of minutes here of Javier having called the police... Uh, Madison police officer Matt Kenny forced entry into the house on Willie Street after apparently hearing a disturbance inside the apartment. No one else was present during that time, um, either on the side of the officers, Kenny um, responded alone, or in the home. So there is also a question of what kind of disturbance would be so loud that you felt the need to break in. The police said that Tony was acting violently um, and knocked Officer Kenny to the ground. Kenny then shot Tony. Uh, Kenny is said to have suffered a concussion and a sprained knee from the, the assault. In quotes, I'm putting it in quotes. The dispatch audio indicates that just 18 seconds elapsed From the time Matt Kenney pulled up to the home to the time he shot Tony. 18 seconds to be at the door, to supposedly hear a disturbance, to break in, to go up the stairs, to be in some sort of altercation, and then to shoot somebody. That's not a lot of time. Uh, Former, now. Uh, Police Chief Koval described the scuffle between the officer and the man as, quote, mutual combat, unquote. A neighbor from next door rushed to the window after he heard the shots and um, could hear gurgling and choking noises, but couldn't see where they were coming from. A neighbor across the street named Olga says she saw Officer Kenny And another officer, who had arrived um, in the interim, drag the limp, bloody body of Tony Robinson out onto the porch. I watched them drag him out like a piece of garbage, she said. Others said that cops were standing around Tony, but not acting with any immediacy. Um... Officer Kenny claims he performed CPR on Robinson, and Robinson was taken to a hospital, but later died. However, um, Olga disputes that. Um, She says, he was put on a gurney, and he was lifeless. He died at that house. He did not die at the hospital. The friend who, um, had witnessed Tony take magic mushrooms earlier in the day, um, told the guardian, he was in a place in his head that no one else in this world, in the universe, could have understood but him. You have one person, Tony, who was so fucking gone, and another person, Officer Kenny, who was trained and capable of reason, and they killed him. He needed help, and they just took him. Now that we know kind of the basic story, there are some reports that Tony was running in and out of traffic. Um, Those reports come about the time that he supposedly went across the street and supposedly punched somebody and then had to cross the street to get back. So I'm not really focused on that. And again, this kid was killed. Those are not things we need to focus on. I want to go back and talk a little bit about the life of Tony Robinson. At this point, he was 19 years old. Um, and had been through a lot in his life. His uncle, who was just 24 told the Guardian that Tony grew up with no structure. Um, So little things such as eating regularly together helped mold this child's identity and help him know right from wrong. Tony lived in Stoughton from ages five to nine and Stoughton is a suburb to the south of Madison where racism is even more rampant than in Madison proper. Um, It's very much a farmy town feel, um, and there's not a lot of room for people who are different. In his early teens, um, Tony effectively became the man of the house. The instability and angst of adolescence were compounded by changing high schools three times before he graduated from Sun Prairie High School. Sun Prairie, of course, is another incredibly white community just outside of Madison, um, on the like to the east. And it is full of very notable racism. Um, racism is so rampant in Madison proper that nearly half of Madison's black students don't graduate high school on time because of the multiple hoops they have to jump through, the multiple difficulties they have to deal with. Tony finished high school early. He ran into a legal issue after graduating because he participated in a nonviolent home invasion with four other people Um, At the time he was murdered, he was on probation, but had also dedicated to turning things around. He had plans of attending a community college. He talked about moving to New York. He had messed up and used that time to find his purpose in life and was ready to get on that road. His uncle um, shared... I could not imagine somebody's death impacting my life more profoundly. There is something so beautiful about a black kid, especially in America, trying to make it against all odds and fucking up so bad, but then actively trying to better his situation and become a better person. He was so close. Tony's mother, Andrea, said, my son has never been a violent person. And to die in such a violent, violent way, it baffles me. Whatever you believe about my son, he was a human being and he was my son. And he was a brother and a nephew and a grandson. I want us to sit with that for a moment. When people are killed, when people are murdered, we do not often think about the others around them who would be affected unless we know for sure that that murder was done wrongfully frankly I would say all murder is wrongful unless you're in self-defense but there are some cases where I can see it being justifiable as well right being a survivor of abuse Obviously, there are points where you get that you can't handle anymore, and things happen. As a survivor of abuse, I get that. When people are killed by police, it is not often the first thing that, let's face it, white folks think of, particularly when the individuals killed are black or brown or another person of color. We do not think about the value of that life. Um, I think many people's reactions are, oh, well, clearly that person did something wrong then. We turn around, we victim blame in a way that, say, if... If Tony had instead been sexually assaulted, we would never do. Or at least we would say we would never do. And yet many of the same people who advocate for sexual assault victims do not step forward and say the same in cases like this, where there are multiple questions and multiple issues with statements, with timing, with possible cover-ups. And we need to take a moment and look ourselves in the mirror and decide if we want to be the type of people who can just shirk off somebody being murdered, regardless of who it's by or what it was for. I can't. And I don't think if you're listening to this, you can either. I like to think I know the five of you who probably listen to this. (laughs) I know it's more of you, but I want to get into Officer Kenny's history a little bit here, too. This was not Officer Kenny's first incident where he ended the life of somebody while on duty. In 2007, Kenny had shot and killed Ronald Brandon. Ronald was standing on the porch of his own home, holding what was later learned to be a pellet gun. Uh, Chief Koval described this murder as suicide by cop because Ronald had called the police to report someone wielding a gun and then sat on the porch where he pulled out his pellet gun and held it up to his head in front of police and then pointed it at them. That's when Kenny fired multiple shots and murdered Ronald Brandon. The Dane County District Attorney ruled the shooting as justified and the Madison Police Department awarded him a Medal of Valor all that would have been needed in that situation would have been a single shot to the shoulder of the arm uh, holding that pellet gun. Ronald Brandon didn't need to die and Matt Kenney stayed on the force. In 2015 After murdering Tony Robinson, who also didn't need to die, Matt Kenney stayed on the force. As I speak right now, Matt Kenney is still a part of the Madison Police Department. He has been a part of responding to protests and engaging in hostile interactions with people of color, particularly within the last several weeks since George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. This is not okay. After Tony was murdered, um, people associated with the Black Lives Matter movement protested his death Around 1,500 protesters, many of whom were high school students, staged a walkout and filled the Capitol three days later on March 9th to protest the death. They did their well-known chant, hands up, don't shoot, while walking through and standing in the Capitol building. Wisconsin law requires the Wisconsin Department of Justice to investigate all officer shootings well that lead to a murder Um, Mm -hmm. the family had the faith that they would handle the investigation with integrity on May 12th of 2015 so three months later two months later math is not my strong suit at the moment um, Dane County District Attorney, Ozane, announced Matt Kenney would not face charges and that the shooting was labeled a lawful use of deadly police force. I want to reiterate that Matthew Kenny has murdered two people in the course of of his employment as a police officer with the Madison City Police Department and has faced repercussions for neither of those things. Police Chief Kowal said it was absolutely appropriate for protesters to express their feelings but also called for restraint. He consistently was antagonistic in press conferences. He did not really allow for concerns about the local police's ongoing overuse of force or racism. Um, There were multiple black men murdered within the year surrounding Tony's murder. And many of those folks were also not charged. Madison police have a habit of crashing any sort of hip-hop event in Madison to the point where people don't have them here anymore. We used to have um, album release parties by local hip-hop artists and R&B artists. They do them now. They are so much more comfortable doing this an hour and a half to two hours away, because generally speaking, they know they don't have to worry about the police busting in. The police in Madison consistently harm black and brown kids and black and brown adults. They consistently act with overuse of force targeted towards minorities. It is an epidemic across the nation, across the world, and especially here in Madison. Chief Koval seemed more worried about how the shooting would reflect on not just the officers employed in the police department at the time, but on recruiting, he was concerned that we wouldn't be able to to recruit good officers because they know the second they make a mistake. This is a, this is me paraphrasing out of a number of his um, press conferences and writings and giving talks, right? Um. This is not anything he has said directly. I just want to make that clear. Um, He's so concerned that folks from the outside looking in who might be interested in becoming a cop will see this as, wow, anytime I make a mistake, they're going to be all over me. I might as well not become a cop. And if that's what you take away from this, I don't even know what to say. A child lost his life. Um, The good news is that Chief Koval kind of retired suddenly. He announced his retirement at the end of September of 2019. And like within a few days was gone. Like by October. And this was after pressure From the newer mayor, Satya Rhodes-Conway. Satya has been an interesting person to figure out. In the past, she has been a staunch advocate for speaking out against police brutality. Um, But her actions in the last couple of weeks don't point to that as being a primary facet of her platform as a mayor. And one of the things I'm concerned about is her former job was helping to train other mayors on how to respond to issues. If she's not responding well, and she essentially trained folks in her position, that's concerning. Quite frankly... And I'll I'll get back to Satya later. Um, I think that the words from Chief Koval, often combative and dismissive, speak for themselves. Here is a really great quote. You're going to love it so much. Um, When he retired, the the police chief in Madison keeps a blog of sorts. Um, And this was his last little... Hoorah! To the haters, thank you as well. For through your unrelenting, unforgiving desire to make the police the brunt of all of your scorn, I drew strength from your pervasive and persistent bullying. The police should be there to serve a community. If you are being called on the carpet for doing something wrong by the community and being asked to be held accountable for those wrongs, that's not bullying. Just FYI. (sighs) I really hated him so much for so many reasons. Ugh. The Robinson family attorneys continue to this day to insist that forensic and video evidence prove Matt Kenney lied about what happened when Tony was killed. In particular, they say that synchronized audio and video from the dash cam of Officer Kenney's car Um, during the incident show that Kenny could not have been at the the top of the stairs when he began firing on Tony. Um, Here is a quote from one of the attorneys. The audio and visual, if I could talk, the audio and video show that Officer Kenny was at the base of the stairs. It doesn't take a forensic scientist to see that. He couldn't be at the top of the stairs for the first shot and then be coming out the bottom doorway by the second shot that means that officer kenny's story about being punched at the top of the stairs and responding with a shot is untrue the location of the bullet casings are all at the base of the stairs and outside indicating the shots were fired at the base of the stairs there is no high impact blood spatter anywhere above the halfway point of the stairs That's strong evidence that there were no shots fired at the top of the stairs. The attorneys also fought the police department's internal investigation, saying it was aimed to clear Kenny. And it was. Period. This has happened in multiple police-involved murders. Here in Madison. They are looking to get their guys off. Most specifically troubling? Matthew Kenny was never questioned. I'm gonna repeat that again. Officer Matt Kenny, who murdered 19 year old biracial Tony Robinson in his home, was never questioned about the incident during the internal investigation by the Madison Police Department. This is again another quote from one of the family attorneys. This is the main problem with the internal investigation. They asked zero questions. This is not a case where they asked some questions but didn't ask other questions. They asked zero questions of an officer whose story at even first glance was problematic. That's a broken internal investigation process. And he's right. In February of 2017, Andrea Irwin, uh, now Johnson, congratulations on getting married, um, accepted a settlement from the city. Um, the first office, excuse me, the first offer from the city was around, uh, I think it was $1.5 million in a, in the wrongful death suit against the city. Um, Andrea turned that down and said, no, you know, we need to go to trial with this. Um, Later on, they were offered a $3.35 million settlement from the city. And, um, of course, again, as is all all the case in, in all cases like this, um, the city did not and would not admit guilt. Um, Andrea and the lawyers knew that it would be best for her to take this because... Um, even if she were to win and there's a very strong chance with the evidence that she were would have, um, the police department could fight her forever for it by running it through the appeals process. And she has, um, at the time she had three kids, I think all 18 and under to take care of. And we'll, we'll get into a little bit of her story in a moment here, but, um, You know, people need to do what they need to do to live. It's weird, I know. But uh, it's it's life. So the family accepted that. The legal team for the family following the settlement um, had then placed the evidence that they pointed out, uh, you know, shed... uh, a not great light on the police department um on a website and shared it with the public. That website is now defunct. Um I'm gonna see if I can try to pull it up on the Wayback Machine. And if I can I will put that in the show notes. Jim Palmer, the executive director of the Wisconsin Professional Police Association, said that he wished um again, this is all paraphrasing. Uh, that, one, the family and the legal team didn't do this, and two, that the case had gone to trial. Now this is a quote. We find it difficult to reconcile the the Robinson family's efforts to try their case in the court of public opinion after they chose to settle the case and stay out of a court of law. If they felt as confident about their claims as they suggest, we would have preferred they hadn't agreed to a settlement. Which was a choice Matt Kenny did not have. Matt Kenny would have preferred a trial and the opportunity to clear his name again. <sighs> In a later statement, Chief Koval said he cannot respond to specific arguments raised by Robinson's lawyers. We cannot comment on a one-sided version of facts that will never be subjected to the cross-examination afforded by a trial. To suggest you have new evidence supplied by experts paid by the plaintiffs should be considered in the context from which it is proffered. The legal team pointed out that they really want a new internal investigation and they want Kenny to be interviewed directly and questioned about the discrepancies between his story and both the forensic and scientific evidence. And, yeah. If you had a murderer in front of you, let's take away the, the notions of cop versus civilian, right? Let's just say you have a murderer in front of you, Let's say it's a couple. The wife was murdered. You have the husband in front of you. The husband has stated he did it. Admitted fully. Would you refrain from interviewing him? Ever? Would you only go off of what he wrote in his incident report immediately following and not... Request a new report. Converse with this person. It seems real off, doesn't it? (sighs) Tony's mother, Andrea, used to work as a case manager for a transitional living service with children. She lost her job due to the time that she had to take off after Tony was killed and was forced to move um, because a local TV, TV station posted audio from a 911 call that she had made before Tony died, several months before, because Tony was suicidal and she was concerned for him. That call included her address and phone number, and... Wouldn't you know it, the local TV station decided to keep those in. Andrea said, People would bang on my patio door at night and throw all kinds of stuff at my house. I couldn't sleep. I was scared I couldn't get to my kids if something happened, so we got out of there. For a time, she sent her second oldest son To live with her brother in Canada. um, And talked a little bit about it. I didn't want him here. I'm very afraid for either of my boys to have an encounter with any police officer in the city. Because I don't know what's going to happen. He can create his own friendships there and not have people know everything that's going on in his life. He's not gone for good, but he needed to go to grieve. And he came back and the family is connected again people also went after Andrea for money that she collected there was a GoFundMe to raise money for the funeral expenses for Tony Um, and then with the settlement it's not anybody's business but of course, everyone makes it their business. The $18,000 that was collected from the on ca- online campaign, all of that went to his funeral. Andrea says, I had $10,000 in savings. That's all gone now. We haven't even gotten him a headstone for his gravesite yet because we can't afford it at the time of this interview. Which I think was 2016. Um, She was also really leery of getting him a headstone because the gravesite was already vandalized multiple times. Why would you put something more permanent on there for people to harm? And how fucked up is that? Andrea said, they keep stealing things from it. The gravesite. And someone drove over his grave. We've tried to keep it secret where he was buried because there are so many people against us. I cannot imagine the pain that that mama feels. That that family feels. And how much it gets brought back. Every single time somebody desecrates her little boy's gravesite. Her little boy who was murdered by a cop. Um, as I said a, a bit ago, Andrea recently got married and moved her family to California because Madison just continues to hurt her as a city. And frankly... With what's happened the last few weeks, I'm glad she's not here. I know that she would want to be a part of it. She would want to help push for good. But she's done her stuff and she gets to rest. That's how this should be, right? So what's happened in the most recent weeks? Well... A lot. And honestly, I probably have as much content uh, to go through about that as I did talking about Tony's murder. Which feels weird. But, you know, part of this is current stuff, too. So, as I said earlier, despite Satya, our mayor, being against police brutality, she has lied to protesters about her ability to affect issues like curfews that were set within the last few weeks. She has told people to go home. She has told people to raise money, to give money to um, the fundraising efforts to help businesses, which... I want to point out businesses that may have been harmed during protests. Most of them are national businesses. Many of them are local. um, But they all also have insurance. So why are we fundraising for businesses, especially if those ones aren't local, if they have insurance? Why are we not spending that money doing something better for black and brown folks locally why is it that it seems like white people just want to give to the cause that doesn't re- make them reflect on their values um, there is an eight can't wait campaign going on, um, and I've actually included a link in the show notes to, um, a website talking about how that's incorrect and how really abolition is the way to go, um, but I did want to point out that the acting police chief, Victor Wall, released a statement in response to the 8 Can't Wait campaign, because so many people have been writing, um, and so we can talk through some of those points and um, his response to them. So the first one was to ban chokeholds and strangleholds, like those that murdered George Floyd. Um, Wall says, MPD does not, nor has it ever, trained officers in chokeholds, strangleholds, or any other similar techniques. MPD policy specifically prohibits use of these techniques unless deadly force is justified. And deadly force is always up to the officers to decide. And that's concerning to me. Um, The second point is requiring de-escalation. MPD has implemented a policy on de-escalation that requires the use of de-escalation techniques, such as time, distance, communication, etc., when feasible. All officers were trained in de-escalation when this policy was implemented New officers are trained in de-escalation and the principle is incorporated into many aspects of officer training, such as professional communication, tactical response, etc. The next point is requiring a warning before shooting. MPD policy requires that before using deadly force, officers shall, if reasonably, possible identify themselves and order the subject to desist from unlawful activity this requirement is reinforced in officer training do you think in the 18 seconds that supposedly matt kenny was able to break down a door and get up to the top of the stairs get a concussion and a sprained knee um and then get back down the stairs while shooting do you think he had time before he started shooting to do any of that? So I feel like uh no. Okay. Next point is duty to intervene. MP or MPD policy and code of conduct states that any officer present and observing another officer using excessive force or engaged in unlawful conduct or in violation of the Madison Police Department's Code of Conduct, has an affirmative obligation to intercede and report. Ban shooting at moving vehicles MPD policy states that shooting at moving vehicles is never authorized unless a person in the vehicle is threatening the officer or another person with deadly force by means other than the vehicle Or if the vehicle is being operated in a manner that reasonably appears deliberately intended to strike an officer or another person, and all other reasonable means of defense have been exhausted or are not present or practical. The next point is to require comprehensive reporting. MPD policy requires that any officer who uses physical force, weapons, items, or devices against a person shall complete an original or supplemental report on the incident. This includes pointing a firearm at an individual. Additionally, officers who use recordable force must contact a supervisor to review the use of force and enter the information about the incident into an internal database. Each use of recordable force is reviewed by MPD use of force coordinator, and certain levels of force require an initial on scene supervisory response and review. The one question I have about that is why is that not information that's public? This is just my thought. And the last point is to require use of force continuum. The 8 Can't Wait initiative defines this as restricting the most severe types of force to the most extreme situations and creating clear policy restrictions on the use of each police weapon and tactic. MPD policy and training are consistent with this. Deadly force is clearly restricted to extreme situations and the use of specific tools and techniques is specifically restricted in policy. MPD officers are trained in a manner consistent with the state of Wisconsin's defensive and arrest tactics or D-A-A-T curriculum as required by the state. The D-A-A-T system incorporates an intervention options matrix with restrictions on specific techniques. And again, um, that eight can't wait campaign is really not endorsed by a lot of black folks, a lot of people of color. um, And the following that I'm reading here is an update from the website that i'm going to put in the links um, in the show notes about that eight can't wait is not exactly correct and that there are better ways to handle this while communities across the country mourn the loss of george floyd brianna taylor tony mcdade jamel floyd and so many more black victims of police murder Campaign Zero released its Eight Can't Wait campaign, offering a set of eight reforms they claim would reduce police killings by 72%. As police and prison abolitionists, we believe that this campaign is dangerous and irresponsible, offering a slate of reforms that have already been tried and failed, that mislead the public newly invigorated to the possibilities of police and prison abolition, and that do not reflect the needs of criminalized communities. We honor the work of abolitionists who have come before us and those who organize now. A better world is possible. We refuse to allow the blatant co-optation of decades of abolitionist organizing towards reformist ends that erase the work of Black feminist theories. As the abolitionist organization Critical Resistance recently noted, 8 Can't Wait will merely improve policing's war on us. Additionally, many abolitionists have already debunked the 8 Can't Wait campaign's claims, assumptions, and faulty science. Abolition can't wait. And I've put links in the show notes about abolition, about what it looks like to defund the police. I am not an expert on those topics. There are plenty of people out there who are. Listen to them. Follow their lead. Learn from them. Okay? Don't ask me questions about that. I'm not a person that can answer them right now. Um, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, which again, Minneapolis is... Three and a half to four hours away from us, depending how fast you drive, what the weather is like, what events are going on, and if there are police in your way. (laughs) So, those types of incidents, like the protests and George Floyd's murder specifically, hit home hard because this is not far away. It is closer to us than many other parts of Wisconsin. It's about as far away as like South Chicago, right? Like these are close areas to us. These are close people to us. A protest was organized by Freedom Inc., Urban Triage, and the Party for Socialism and Liberation, which is also named PSL. It's their shortened acronym. That's what I was going for. Um, helped to organize protests here in Madison. Sawyer Johnson with PSL stated at the first protest, We have a white queer mayor, and as a fellow white queer person, I got to have a conversation with her. We refuse to denounce any black youth leader that is continuing to lead the rebellion, because that is what it is. We care more about black lives than urban outfitters getting tagged. It is clear to us that Madison's liberalism only masks the true white supremacy nature of capitalism. Not only does Matt Kenney still have his job, he's training police on mediation. Think about that. Someone who has murdered two people while on the force, both, with excessive use of force, in the eyes of the public. Is training newbie cops on mediation techniques. It's bullshit. The founder of Urban Triage, Brandi Grayson, um, recently said, "Some of us are upset at the looting. I get it. Some of us are upset about the property." I get it, but nobody is offering solutions or policy change. What was offered? Tear gas? More people showed up and donated to businesses who have insurance than donated to the cause. If you are really about black liberation, we need you to put your money where your mouth is. And you know what? She's right. She's absolutely right. She also said that several years of leading peaceful protests over Tony's murder, along with efforts to stop construction of a New Dane County jail and remove police from schools, have given Black youth the tools to create something new. These protests really were spontaneous and led by the youth, she says. They have been paying attention to the organized protests that happened during the day after Floyd's death, and you can see them using the same tools and strategies we use to direct the crowd and refocus the crowd. It's powerful as hell. It's like the youth is just waiting to be led. They need they just needed an example. They just needed a model and they are doing it. That's really impactful. And there, there are concerns that part of the looting that has happened here in Madison is related to white folks joining in and using it for their own, using the protests for their own means. Um, in fact, two little white girls um, were part of the group that broke into Urban Outfitters and stole clothing. And started tagging a bunch of businesses and breaking windows. So I want to make sure that we talk about that too. On the one hand, yes, there are especially cases of white kids and adults using this moment As a way to cause destruction. That is something that is happening. And we must face that. And figure out what we need to do to combat that. Because if you're white and you're at these protests. Your job is not to incite shit. Your job. Is to shut up unless you're chanting something that people have started chanting. Or. Unless you're speaking to the police, trying to protect the people of color around you, your job is to act as a human shield, your job is to use your white privilege for good, for protection. Your job is not to fuck shit up. That is only going to reflect poorly on the people of color who need reforms. And it's only going to incite violence against them and get people to not believe in their cause. So if your goal in doing that is to make the world worse, just join the police department, please. You'll have many more tools at your disposal, I promise. Secondly, we need to address the issue of Outside agitators or instigators coming into the protests. While, yes, it is true, there are some white people who are using these protests, as previously mentioned, to fuck shit up. And, yes, it is true that these people may be driving from other places. It is also true that historically, during every Riot based on police murdering a black individual, which, by the way, seems to happen every few years. There were multiple ones in Harlem in the late uh, 19-teens, in, I think, 1935. There have been multiple ones. Throughout the years, and every time this happens, people bring up, oh, well, we shouldn't really pay attention to these that much because there's just a lot of outside instigators and agitators coming in. They're busing people in from, I don't know, Harlem or Birmingham or some other city, or George Soros is paying people to be there. Using those examples is racism. It is specifically saying, oh, well, these marches, this worldwide phenomenon that over 18 countries now have also participated in, and that all 50 states in the United States have participated in, eh, it's just, you know, there are just people that are getting paid to do this. Or there's just people who don't have anything better to do. That means you're not listening. You may be listening to respond, but you're not listening to understand. And that's not really listening then. You're just waiting out your turn to speak again. We cannot use these age-old bullshit excuses to deny what is happening in front of our faces. We shouldn't have used them then, and we fuck as sure shouldn't be using them now. And you know what? I'm super white. I'm super white that it's hard on mornings like this morning when I woke up and was even whiter than normal, because I didn't feel good. I was like, Jesus, what am I going to just turn into like pale enough you can see through me, right? I am painfully white, and I have experienced so much privilege because of that. If I were black, if I were black and I had seen the throng and strings of murders being done by police, being done by white nationalists, being done by the KKK, who never get prosecuted, who never get really investigated, who always like avoid charges and even if they do get charged they always get off if i saw that on a day-to-day basis and i saw how little people cared about my life fucking like beating up and tagging an urban outfitters would be the least of my worries Also, as an aside, Urban Outfitters, um, engages in cultural appropriation. They make stuff using child slave labor, and they steal stuff from artists without ever, um, you know, asking, hey, can we put this on a bag and sell it for $85? And also then fight the artists when they share the, no, that, like, I clearly made that Um, so like, excuse me if I don't give a fuck about Urban Outfitters. Some of the other stores that got tagged or places that got taken down, um, looted across the states, right? If you're relying on child labor in Botswana, I'm sorry. I'm gonna fuck your shit up. Like, you don't deserve to make money off of child slaves or off of stealing culture or a number of other things that is just my personal opinion on that it is not to say i'm gonna go fuck shit up but if i was in the area and shit was already being fucked with would i fuck it up more yes i probably would i probably would unless I knew that I needed to keep my fricking mouth shut so that I didn't harm people of color by doing it. Okay, now with that aside, (laughs) I want to share some quotes and some stories from some of the protests that have happened here in Madison. One young man on a mic during a protest said, This is the greatest revolution since Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Think about that. This is in every state. This is international. And again, they're right. All 50 states have participated. Major, ooh, excuse me. Major cities have participated. 18 countries plus have participated in Black Lives Matter marches specifically. Like France is marching for us. It just also happens to be that it highlights the case of somebody who was recently killed over there who also had to shout, I can't breathe. And Mexico City is doing the same thing because hmm, the other day, uh, a person was killed there by police for not wearing a mask in a restaurant. Like he was literally about to eat. And so he didn't have a mask on and they beat him to death. The Mexico City police did that. So guess what? Mexico City. Part of this now. Right? We cannot deny police brutality. We cannot deny it's a global problem. Um we can also not deny the power of protests and riots. Because as this young man said, this is the greatest revolution since MLK was assassinated. You wanna know why the Civil Rights Acts got passed? It was because after martin luther king was assassinated a week long set of riots and protests happened in multiple major cities in the united states that's why it got passed and at the end of this i'll i'll share some of the other stuff that has happened because of what's happening now like the progress we have already made but i want to share some more quotes from the youth <laughs> um Aaliyah, a 15 year old high school student in madison said that she feels an obligation to her father i'm scared that he's gonna walk out the house the police are gonna think he did something wrong and he's gonna get shot she said that's why I'm out here. I'm out here for him. I'm out here so my little sister will not have to grow up without a father. Ariona, another teenager in Madison, said it feels like people don't understand our pain and the struggles. I'm here to end police brutality, she said. I'm willing to risk my life for the people who have lost theirs. Tamaya Travis said the killing of Floyd is just the latest horrific example of injustice and indignities routinely felt by black youth in America. We shouldn't be scared to go out in public, she said. We can't hang out in groups because they think we're a gang. We shouldn't be scared to get pulled over. We shouldn't be scared to talk to police when we need something. But we're terrified because every time we do, our lives might be in danger, because even three simple words, I can't breathe, is not respected. Jay, um, a recent graduate of one of the Madison high schools, said that he started coming out to protest at night because he could, quote, finally see something positive happen. Black people are the most hated people alive. We have been for hundreds of years. Wouldn't you be mad if you were me? There's a reason why we feel like this. There's a reason why we're upset. Our entire lives we have grown up at a disadvantage. There's no such thing as a peaceful protest. You don't get nothing out of that. We've been doing that for 60 years or longer, and barely anything has changed. Barely anybody is hearing our voice. Barely anybody is coming up and speaking out on the fuckery that's going on all the time. And again, he's right. People want protests to be quiet. They want protests not to mess up their daily commute on the Beltline, Because then they can ignore it. They can avoid it. They can comment... Oh, we stand with you cops on Facebook statuses um, shared by WKOW and enjoy the bullshittery that happens in those comments without having to think about the fact that they're privileged enough to be able to sleep at night in their own beds and don't have to worry about cops breaking in and murdering them in their sleep. That's what the reality of this is. And I apologize, because I'm probably preaching to the choir. Maybe some of you don't know this. I don't know. All I know is I am doing what I can, and I hope you're doing what you can to educate people, too. Youth organizers of these protests use call-and-response chants to stop fights, to weed out troublemakers, kick people out. Um, and prevent crowd panic, right? Stay together is one that they'll do when there's problems. Um, another one that they do don't start. No shit. Won't be no shit. Right. And these chants and the energy around them stops behavior before it gets violent. You don't need cops down there in full riot gear. It's amazing. The protests also feature drills in case police try to break up protests or bad, actor- bad actors try to infiltrate the protest. So one of those methods is asking white allies to form a human chain around protesters of color. Right? Use your white privilege literally as a shield. One of the organizers over the sound system at one of the protests said, We aren't asking you to take a bullet for us. We just know that the police won't shoot you. We are all on the same side. Many of the teenagers who have gone um, are bringing things like tennis rackets with them to swat tear gas canisters right back. Stacy, one person, told the Isthmus recently, As a white ally, I am there to listen, but to be ready to put my body between the police and people of color who are peacefully protesting. Having protective gear is vital just in case. At that same protest, there was a white guy who seemed older than everybody else wandering around in the crowd, and he had, you know, snacks on him and was handing stuff out. And the Isthmus stopped and talked to him, too. There are supply houses across the Isthmus, he said. There's a group, about a 100 of us, who communicate covertly to make sure the youth have everything they need. We have a whole medic team, too. Our job is to support and stay out of the way. This is... After a number of days where police spent time launching tear gas and flash grenades and other projectiles of protesters. Tear gas, by the way, if we were to use it in war, it violates the Geneva Convention. But we use it against our own people all of the time when they are... Almost always peacefully protesting. Without police there to instigate and agitate, things are quiet. The protests go smoothly. You cannot expect any rational person... To behave normally when they see a wall of police in front of them in riot gear holding tear gas canisters. I don't know about you, but watching the violence the police have perpetrated, often it being recorded and not anywhere near justifiable, that makes me angry seeing it in person would make me incredibly furious. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. There is a, um, lawyer who is actually conservative, um, but my partner follows his podcast and I believe his name is Greg Doucette. Um, but I will put in the comments he has been collecting video of um various forms of police brutality. Yes, Greg Greg Busset. Duset. Ah, close. Um he's been collecting videos of various police brutality um since the protest began and we are well over four hundred um here most of it is on video, some of it is pictures, but, um, if you, if you, one, don't believe police are violent towards protesters with no cause, and two, also still believe that after having watched police in Philly crack the skull open of a 75-year-old man and then deny, officers around them the opportunity to help this person while his head is bleeding on the cement. If you still believe the police brutality unprovoked is not a thing, you need to go read that thread on Twitter. Again, look in the notes. Our mayor Satya has attempted to distinguish those masses of protesters from the small group of agitators. Um, She pled in a statement on June 2nd for nighttime demonstrations to end. Please stay home tonight, she said. I welcome protests, particularly in the daytime, but I do not want legitimate protests to continue to provide cover for this violent, unacceptable behavior. I understand anger, but there is no excuse for putting lives in danger, and that is what is happening. Again, please stay home tonight and tomorrow night. Thankfully, starting on June 3rd, police were invisible downtown. They've been keeping watch um, of protests from surveillance cameras and through dark windows and buildings overlooking the demonstrations, including the City County building and at the Capitol. Um, Police strike teams continue to stand ready in tactical gear in both of those buildings um, in case a protest gets too raunchy for them. I don't know how to say how creepy it is that we just have cops waiting and riot gear in the wings ready to bust people. We part of why these protests have been so impactful here in Madison is because of Tony's murder. In fact some of the organizers of these protests have talked about. They don't put an end date on justice. They are still fighting for justice for Tony and that demonstrations will continue until demands are met. Uh, One such person shared, we demand that Matt Kenny be fired and that the community has control over the police. The community should be in charge of investigating police violence, not other cops. We have no plans of stopping until then. and this person is right community oversight of police if we're going to continue to have them is a must we need real people on a committee on multiple committees working on improving police forces if they're going to stay a thing there are cities that have pulled back funding for police forces and invested some of that funding into other methods like social work and crisis response, uh, hotlines, and all sorts of things. One thing to note there, though, is that there are a lot of people of color, black and brown folks and indigenous folks, who still may not call um, if they know a social worker is going to respond because Social workers have been consistently terrible for the bi POC community. When I say bi POC, it's, um, black and brown, indigenous and people of color. It's, it basically is supposed to encapsulate everybody who is not white because whiteness should not be the norm and we shouldn't just say non-white. Um, that's why. Social workers came in and stole indigenous babies and put them in boarding schools and stripped them of their culture. Social workers help pull kids away from their parents um, and get their parents sent away for neglect that wasn't happening. right? Like, social work is important, and it should be funded more, absolutely, but, That is not the only solution here. We cannot just say, oh, just put more money towards social work and uh, take that money from the police. That's not an answer. There isn't an easy answer here. Again, that's why I point to people who are knowledgeable in this subject in ways that I am not. So again, read the links. (laughs) Please, I beg of you. So what now? Right? Well, I'm gonna tell you a very uncomfortable truth in case the rest of this podcast was somehow hunky-dory for you. All white people are racist. Before you turn it off, before you unsubscribe, unfollow... Listen to what I have to say, please. Again, I am incredibly white. We have covered that. The reality is that I benefit greatly from my whiteness in a way that folks who are by POC will never experience. Systems are not built specifically to oppress me on the basis of my skin color that doesn't mean my life isn't hard by all means. It isn't easy. But my skin color is not the thing making it hard. And that's white privilege. In a very, very small nutshell, that's white privilege. The same can be said for people who are cisgender versus people who are transgender. As a trans person, I don't experience a lot of the um, benefits and privileges of cis society. So if you identify with the gender you were assigned at birth, cool. But also recognize that means you've got privilege, right? Or people who who have a disability don't have privilege that people who don't have disabilities have. These are some of the cornerstones of Intersecting Levels of Oppression and Intersectionality by Kimberly Crenshaw. And I really hope that you take time to look up what that means. It's not just a buzzword. It's not just something to put on your Twitter profile. Ooh, 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 I'm an intersectional liberal feminist. Like, that is not how you... (laughs) be intersectional. That is not how you understand intersectioning or intersecting levels of oppression, right? And my voice is dying, so I'm sorry. Um, I've apparently talked a lot today in my lower voice. Um, Those of us who are not white must see that recognizing white privilege doesn't mean we're awful people. Right? Just because I'm white doesn't mean I am actively racist. Right? I am racist because I benefit from racism. I benefit from white supremacy. But I am not actively participating, generally speaking, in racism. I think all white people do have what I would call covered spots, right? Oh, maybe you didn't know that calling somebody uppity is not a good thing, right? That word historically has been used to target black and brown folks and make them out to be hysterical, right? So maybe you didn't know that before just now. And you've been using it a bunch. That's something that just because it was a covered spot for you doesn't mean it's not racist for you to have been using that word. There's a lot. There's a lot. We don't know because we're not taught it. And then we often don't seek it out on our own. And that needs to change. James Baldwin was a noted black queer author and poet and beautiful human being and he has a quote that i always use when i talk to people about things like cultural competency which is essentially like knowing how to talk to different cultures when you're engaging in work with people right And the quote is, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. We can't change the oppressive systems that exist until we see them for what they are. You can't fix a flat tire if you don't know you have a flat tire. If other people are telling you, hey, roll down your window hey, you have a flat tire and you choose not to listen to them, you're never going to get your flat tire fixed because you're just going to keep going on being ignorant. Right now, working to change those oppressive systems means a couple of things. It means listening to Black folks specifically and following their lead not just in protests, but also in other spaces. Um, There are Black women who have been calling out some activists who are biracial and get a lot of steam from the white community, a lot of positive press from the white community. This individual, uh, I will put a link in the show notes for you to do your own reading, Um, but this individual consistently steals ideas from Black women, doesn't share um, transparent records of what happens with money he fundraises. Um, He has actually sicked his Twitter followers, which are in the thousands, the high thousands, on one of my friends who is a black woman who is also disabled and uses a wheelchair because she dared point out that something he said was harmful to the disability community. Her Twitter is how she gets out there. It's how she gets known. It's how she connects with organizations she writes for. It's how she books talking gigs, speaking gigs. He essentially shut down her income for a while. And that was not a uh, coincidence. So, I'm going to put that link in the show notes and you need to go read it. I'm not going to say who the person is. I'm going to say this is the article about that person, right? I don't need to get my shit. <laughs> this also means unpacking our white privilege, right? Right? It means reading books like White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, which I'm in the middle of right now, or books like So You Wanna Talk About Race or How to Be Anti-Racist, right? It looks like reading books about racism in medical care, racism in social work, racism in whatever field you operate in. It means following people of color in your field, that you've never heard of. Like, like doing the work to figure out who they are, figuring out what social media handles they have, figuring out how you can support them. Not doing it because like, ooh, I'm such a good white person, I'm supporting you, but doing it because you need to learn, because you need to listen, because you can use your white privilege to lift up people. You can easily amplify the ability of black and brown folks to be heard by sharing one of their posts. If the majority of your friends list is white, and let's face it, if you live in Wisconsin, <laughs> um, like Wisconsin is not a very diverse area, okay? If you start sharing stuff from black and brown folks, the people around you we'll start to learn better just by sharing. That doesn't even count what happens when you start putting emotional labor into that and you start pointing out things that people say around you that are racist or not okay. And yeah, it's uncomfortable to have these conversations, but it's also uncomfortable to to be living under 400 plus years of servitude Speaking of the 13th Amendment, it didn't end slavery. Have you read it? It ends slavery except in the case of when you are convicted of a crime. Prison labor is tied to this. Places like Wendy's. The last time I had a Frosty, it tasted like shame and anger because... I had learned they rely on prison labor. They pay people sometimes $4 a week who are in prison to do these things. To do things that help them process beef or clean up UPCs that are going on products or whatever. Because it saves them money. Because they don't have to pay... Benefits. They don't have to think about time off, etc. So part of this movement, part of becoming anti-racist, is also seeing who benefits from prison labor and slave labor. And opting out. Like, look, I had a Starbucks the other day. It was wonderful. It made me happy. They use slave labor to to process their coffee beans. They use children. And they use prison labor. I can't do it anymore. And it's not enough for me to just say I can't do it anymore. I need to educate the people around me. We need to talk about it more openly. We need to let the people at Starbucks know, like, hey, fuck you. You don't get to do that. I don't care if my coffee costs more then. I will be fine. These children deserve to have childhoods. The other thing that this means, right, is not tone policing or automatically deciding that rioting is not a a proper way of protesting. It means not saying, well, I mean, Tony shouldn't have died, right? But like, kid was on mushrooms. He was probably unpredictable. Yes, he was unpredictable. That's why his friend tried to do something to help him. That doesn't mean the cops get to respond by murdering him. And again, as we talk about this notion of rioting being bad or protesting that it's physical being bad, since when did property become more important than, than, than human life? And that's a capitalism question. The answer from capitalism is it's always been more important than human life that's why capitalism is directly tied to white supremacy i also want to point out that calling out other people is uncomfortable it's hard god forbid we actually all get to like m- enjoy each other in meet space this year for thanksgiving or whatever um and someone says something racist. And you have that moment where you go, I have to say something. It's gonna be hard. But being on the right side of things is not easy. This is something that I put together after dealing with some people that I really cared about. Just kind of eating me off Facebook for pointing out Racism. Um and I want to share it with you. I'm going to share a link to it on my personal Facebook page, like the link to where I put it on my personal Facebook page. I don't accept friend requests from people I don't know. You can always send me a message and be like, "Hey, I'll listen to your podcast. Like then maybe we can start talking and be friends, right? But it's one of those things that I do for my mental health. Um, But that way there you can see the whole thing. But I want to share some of it with you right now. If I call you out on something or in on something, if I pull you aside and say, Hey, the word uppity is pretty racist. I really would like you to not say that. And here's why. I do it because I care about you. And I know that sounds weird, but I also know I'm not alone in that. People who point out issues do it because we want you to grow and improve, right? I look at things from a quality improvement standpoint all the time at work. It's something I've done in my jobs for years. We want you to rise up to where we all should be right now. To be on the right side of humanity, of history. And more importantly, we believe in you and we know you can be. This is especially true when I, as a white person, call you out on a racism-related issue. I know you can find your way to anti-racist work. I believe in you because, frankly, I wouldn't be your friend's your friend if I didn't, right? And just because you listen to this podcast doesn't mean we're automatically friends, but look, you've spent a lot of time listening to me. <laughs> I, that means something to me. And I consider some of us friends, at least. You know? Some of us have interacted and had really good conversations. That emotional investment there where someone believes in you and knows you can do better, that's love, okay? That's not hate, that's not anger, that's love. If people didn't care, they'd probably like unfriend you or block you or stop talking to you or whatever, right? If somebody points it out, it's because they care about you. And that's hard to hear in the moment. I know. If you are called in, taken aside, or called out, please don't offer false platitudes. I have seen a lot of that in the last couple of weeks, and it makes me want to punch things. I am not a violent person. Being on testosterone is making me want to punch things anyway. Just, (laughs) like, it's going to make me want to punch things. Um... False platitudes include things like, "Oh, thank you for your feedback," and then not doing anything with what the person said. Not reading on your own, not investigating anything, not changing. You have to be transparent. You have to share the work you're doing to learn and listen because that's how we create accountability. And creating accountability means creating feedback loops where we can say, "Hey, we talked about this and you said you were going to read this book and you haven't said whether you're done with it yet. Or you said that after you were done reading this book, you were going to donate money here, but you didn't say that you did that yet. I want to check in, right? It creates the ability for us to hold each other to a standard. And that's baller, right? We all have to do better. Everyone has things they're hung up about, right? No person is perfect and we can't be. But part of doing better is holding each other to be accountable. Growth isn't comfortable. It pushes our limits. It reminds us that we're human and that we fuck up. It points out our flaws. It reminds us we have work to do. And that we actively need to follow through with that work. It's hard, but we cannot grow and change and improve in comfort, right? Napping for a weekend doesn't produce any change in your home, right? If I nap all weekend, but the garbage keeps piling up and I say, I'm going to take care of that garbage and I don't like it's stinky, stinky right? Like, it doesn't change my living environment at all for the better. Just means I have slept away two days. And sometimes you need to do that. That's a self-care thing. You do you, boo. But like, also, you can't spend every weekend sleeping, right? We have to meet that discomfort that we feel. We have to sit with it. We have to process it so that we can move forward and do better. So that's been my soapbox. Um, and Alexa is telling me to start getting ready for bed, which I have that said like two hours earlier than I should anyway. I never sleep before like one o'clock. in addition to sources for the information in this article again i'm putting a list of resources around racism anti-racism police abolitionism and defunding um reading list on you know how to diversify what you read right things like that and we can all work on learning and doing better together if it's something we're having other people to hold you accountable, right, is helpful, there's a Facebook group for the podcast. And honestly, it's just me and Karen in there. Hi, Karen. She's not a bad Karen. She's a good Karen. (laughs) There are so many ways that we can use that space. And if that means using it as a way to process what racism is, how to be anti-racist, and educate each other on those things, I would love that, right? To have the opportunity to first, like, meet people who listen, hi, um, and interact with you guys on a closer level would make my heart soar, but to be able to do it in a way where we can all get better by the end of it like that is just like that's that's a chef kiss right of podcasting like bring it please (laughs) so I will also put that link in the show notes okay it'll probably be the last link on there because I think it's the least important of everything here to read but I want you to look at that you know look at all the resources let's talk about it. Let's work on what we can do to get better, right? Like I said, I'm reading White Fragility right now by Robin DiAngelo. It is a great book. I am in the first couple of chapters here. You know, book clubs don't change the world, but if everybody's reading things together, maybe that'll help. I don't know. Um, If you have ideas on something that would be helpful for you, that you think is something I can help facilitate, by all means, let me know. I am happy to talk about that stuff and see what we can do to do better together, right? Um... It's gonna take all of us doing the work. It can't just be half of us. (laughs) It's gotta take all of us. And... I know that when we all pitch in, we can do something really cool. So with that said, I am going to go nurture my voice so that when I hop on work calls tomorrow, I can speak and, um, you know, work on getting this episode up so that you can listen to it. I know that this year has been real fucked up so far. Um, and it's scary and we honestly never know what's around the corner now that there have been murder hornets and UFOs, um, and bees attacking the cops, which if you didn't see that, it was delightful. It was like 40,000 bees attacking the police who were like trying to do anti-protester stuff. I don't know. It was great. Um, I'm weird and I think that stuff is funny and this is why... My father, who is a former cop, doesn't talk to me, but that's fine. Um, Take care of you. Take care of each other. It's okay if you can't be a part of protests, right? As somebody with asthma and somebody with a lot of physical issues and with it being so hot right now, it's something that I can't do. Because I will literally need to go to the hospital. And I don't have the time off from work. I don't have a financial buffer, right? To be able to do any of that. And so for me, the way I help is do little things. I listen to the police scanner when my friends are going to protest. So I can let them know if cops are going to be dispersed. Um, I check in on the people of color that I know. Um, Some of y'all probably know this, probably a lot of you don't, right? Like, I also am polyamorous, which means I date multiple people. And a number of my partners are Black. And so, making sure that they're okay, and making sure they got home okay. And the other day when one of them had a cop pull him over for no reason making sure that they knew they could call me if they needed to. If they needed to have somebody listen. That is the reality of the world we're living in right now. So I'm also going to try to put some links in the show notes that talk about what you can do that also doesn't put a burden on people of color. Because it's really easy to be like, I'm here if you need anything, But that means they have to reach out, right? It's a lot easier to be like, hey, where do you want pizza from? Because I'm going to buy you dinner tomorrow, right? Like, do something cool like that. There are definitely a ton of ways we can help communities that are being the most harmed and use the financial privilege that we might have, our white privilege, um, to do that that was an extra soapbox you have gotten several soapboxes (laughs) Um, in the meantime take care of yourself wash your hands remember to socially distance I know it's hard Um, and make sure that you're engaging in one thing every day that is a radical act of self-care it might be going to bed two hours early It might be eating a chocolate bar. (laughs) Whatever it is that gives you extra joy in the day, find that. Because we need it. Like more than ever. Joy should be what keeps us going, right? And it can be. So I hope you find that nugget of joy. I'm going to let you go before you've been listening to me for two hours. (laughs) I love you. Take care of you. You just listened to the Spooky Scani podcast. It's produced every two weeks by me, Kirsten Schultz. The intro outro music is from Purple Plant. You can find show notes and more over at spookyscani.podbean.com, including a transcript in case you missed anything. Take a minute and rate and subscribe if you can. You'll help more people see the show by rating, and you won't miss a single episode if you subscribe. And that's pretty dope. You can support the show over at patreon.com slash podcast. And you can email me anything you'd like me to know at podcast at gmail.com. In the meantime, sleep tight and don't let the badgers bite.